disciple ought to practice their righteousness um, for God's sake, not for their own sake. And it comes now to a time of, of when Jesus begins to, to do, a, I don't want to say digression, but a little excursus, a little bit more on the nature of prayer, assuming that disciples will pray. And it's only fitting that as we begin a sermon uh, talking about prayer, that we should come and pray first to ask God's blessing and upon uh, his word here and that he would be at work in us. So let's do so. God, we need to hear this word, and please show us what you have in it for us. Transform us. Transform us into the likeness of Christ. Transform us into a deeper and greater faith. We pray that you would be showing us our deficiencies, but also showing us your grace and mercy that's found in Jesus. May your spirit be alive and with us in this time here, for we all need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. This is God's word. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. This is the word of God. Prayer of some sort is a part of life that's common to the majority of people throughout the world. Most cultures outside of the Western world have a a traditional religious element to them. And prayer then finds its expression in some form in common life. But even for us here in the Western world where religious identity has waned, into a much more pluralistic and an amorphous form, prayer, in some strange form, continues. Obviously, there's prayer from people who practice religious traditions, particularly even Judeo-Christian religious traditions. Yet prayer, or at least some shadowy idea of prayer, still resides in our overall religious commonplace. People who have no religious identity, even, will often say the following to those who are, who are suffering or those who are in trouble. Sending thoughts your way. Positive vibes to you. And really, what else is that than some sort of prayer? Yet without calling it prayer because of the religious undertones that it has. The point of this here is that disciples don't have the, the market cornered on the practice of prayer. Everyone prays, and so the act of prayer itself isn't unique. But what is unique to a disciple of Jesus, is how they pray. Prayer, how one practices prayer, the form that prayer takes, the content of prayer, these all reveal your view of God. How you practice prayer shows how you relate to God. Is he someone who I have to coerce with my words or my attitudes then to get him to respond? 
What does that say if he doesn't answer me in the way that I asked? If he even answered my prayers at all? Does he even care? How do I approach him? But the content of our prayers is also revealing in how we view him. Is prayer for me? Who do I pray for? What generalizes my prayers and my requests? And then we can't forget the foundational question for the whole thing. To whom is prayer addressed? Who is this God who I'm supposed to pray to? And how do I actually pray to him and address him? And this is where Jesus focuses us here. He is explaining the way that disciples are to pray to the one true God. And Jesus' words have a foundational assumption of exclusivity when it comes to God. Jesus isn't functioning merely as a religious teacher as he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount here. But he has revealed through all this that he is the Son of God himself. And he is therefore uniquely authorized then to speak on these matters unlike anyone else is able to. So that when he refers to prayer to the Father, he's saying that this is the only way that we can pray to the one true God. We say that God is triune. He is three persons, yet one God. And all three persons are involved in prayer. We pray to the Father. We we pray by means of the Son, Jesus. And we pray then also through the Holy Spirit who is given to us here, assisting us and helping us in our weaknesses and our times of prayer. And prayer is not just some ritual to be performed, though, or in some sort of rote way. Prayer has a wholehearted aspect to it. It's to be engaged in not merely by the words of our lips, but also from the depths of the soul and with our mind involved also. Prayer has a real thought and trust and emotion and expression which comes from our whole selves as we address God. And so Jesus gives us a pattern of prayer to help guide us and to teach us what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. This is a pattern here that helps us to form our own individual prayers. It reveals how we address God, who God is, how and what we're supposed to pray for. And the Lord's Prayer can either be a prayer that we pray on its own, or it can also serve as a basic pattern to give us structure and a shape as a launching point, then, for our own prayers. In a way, think of it like a really good basic bread recipe. It's simple. Flour, water, yeast, and salt. But even though it's very basic, on its own, it's great. You can use the recipe as it is, and you'll have good bread. It will even help to teach you the methods of bread making. But it's also a basic recipe that can be personalized. You can adapt it. You can give it your own personal touches. You can modify it to make sweet bread. You can add cinnamon, swirls, and raisins to it. You can turn it into pizza dough, on and on. And the Lord's Prayer is like that. It's like that really good basic bread recipe. It's a simple prayer that you can use on your own, and it's just fine. But it can also be a jumping off point then, so that we can make it personal and individual. It provides a framework for us then to elaborate upon. And we're going to spend some time this morning dwelling on this prayer and the pattern that we see in it, as well as the two bookend remarks that both open and conclude it. And we're going to take note of four observations about prayer from it this morning. 
And the first is that prayer relates to God as Father. Prayer relates to God as Father. Now, when disciples pray, they are addressing God himself in all his glory, in all his majesty, his holiness, his otherness from us. Prayer is when we lift our eyes beyond our own horizons up to the transcendent God who is seated above all. It is a direct address to the creator of all things, to the only and truly holy God. It's one thing for us to cry out or to speak our words up into heavens. But it's a much different matter than for us to consider that God actually hears us when we do. He's holy and transcendent, that he's also near and he's approachable. The very fact that Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray is proof that God wants his people to pray for him, to him. If God the Father were aloof or he were stingy or he didn't want people to, to hear prayer or if he didn't want to hear our prayers, then why would he send the Son of God in the first place to be teaching us how to pray to him? See, there's a deep wonder that needs to be recaptured in prayer. God is both transcendent, but he's also approachable. He is almighty and far off and so different from us, but he's also near. And he invites his people into a very real intimate or a very real expression of an intimate relationship with him. In fact, the very term that his disciples have the privilege of exercising when addressing God in prayer is Father. We see it multiple times. Verse 8. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. The introduction to the Lord's prayer. Our father in heaven. So this is how God chooses to reveal himself to us. As a father. Yet not just any type of father or someone you call dad. It's a father in the best way possible. A father as God has intended fathers to be. Not the failed father figures that you may have had growing up or have had experience with. I don't know what your particular experiences are. But it's a father here. God is a father who knows our needs and who doesn't withhold what's good from us. A father who is kind and gentle, even in the moments of discipline. A father who we can come to at all times and who we can express our thoughts to, our cries for help, express our burdens, no matter how big or small they really are. God reveals himself as a father to his people because this is how he wants his people to relate to him and to approach him. What's your view of God? Do you see him as gracious and as a generous father who is good? Or do you see him in some other way? Do you see him as an authoritarian or someone who doesn't care? And how do you approach God then? Do you come to him with this sort of intimate approach and expression? Do you think that he will be disappointed with you or that you will burden him yet again? See, it's none of those. He is a father to his children and he wants you to come to him and approach him. He longs to give you good things if you will only come to him and ask. He desires to be generous and gracious with you. If not, he wouldn't call himself father in the first place. It's not just a title that he gives himself. When God reveals himself as a father, it's a description of his very being and his very character. For him to not relate to his people 
as a loving father to his children is entirely inconsistent with his essence. It is impossible for God to be stingy or aloof when you pray to him because he would cease to be who he is. And the privilege of getting to relate to God as Father comes through being united to God the Son, Jesus. To have this special privilege means that you get to be part of the family. And God the Father wants to grow his family then so that all sorts of people can know him truly as Father. He adopts people from outside of his family and who have no rights on their own to come in. He shows grace and mercy to his enemies, to sinners, to the lost and the lonely, and to orphans, to have a home then in his family and to be made his children. That's what he does with Jesus, his son. When someone comes and takes hold of Jesus by faith, then Jesus takes that person by the hand and brings them before the Father and says, this one is with me. And the Father says, welcome. I've loved you so much. And he makes them a son or a daughter because they're with his son, Jesus. And so now that individual then has a, 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 a daughter or a son of, of the father and they have a new relationship with him and they know him in this way. See, friends, we get to relate to God the father in the same beautiful way as God the son does. And even when the times that we doubt that is true, God the father also gives us then his spirit to remind us in our times of weakness that it really is true. And this is the part where this is the part of why we often end in our prayers in Jesus' name. We're giving a verbal expression to the fact that we can only approach God the Father by virtue of Jesus the Son. So we first point there is that we that prayer relates to God as Father. But our second point though here, our second idea is that prayer comes from a simple trust. Prayer comes from simple trust. Verse 7, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't pray as the Gentiles do. In other words, don't pray as those who don't understand the idea of having God as your Father. And this shows in the way that that they have used words. Do not heap up empty phrases, it says. In other words, Prayer isn't necessitated on the amount of words that you use. At this time when Jesus is speaking, others in the Roman Empire would pray to their deities by using as many words as they could. It might have been making prayers to be intentionally really long or repeating the same phrase over and over again. And the idea behind it was coercion. They believed that you had to get whatever god or goddess's attention in order to be heard. Or you had to keep at it over and over until they would finally be happy enough to respond. Or they would grow sick and tired with the same phrase being spoken over and over. That they would just answer you so you would just be done. But prayer of a disciple isn't like this. A disciple who has an intimate relationship with God the Father doesn't need to get his attention. Because they already have his attention. A disciple doesn't need to coerce because the father loves to hear the requests of his children. When you pray, you are not heard because of how long your prayers are. You're heard because he wants to hear you. Just the same, he doesn't hear you any less. He doesn't hear you any less favorably if you pray a short prayer as opposed to a long one. 
Because what the Father is looking for is your heart. A disciple prays with their whole person engaged. The mind, the heart, and the expression. A true prayer is actually quite simple. It comes in a trust before God. He's concerned with your attitude and your heart in prayer. It's not so much the words themselves, but it's how they express the trust and the longing which comes from your insides. In fact, the alternative way that Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, which is the Lord's Prayer, is actually a really quite simple prayer. It gets straight to the point. It addresses God as Father in this direct way, knowing that he hears his people. And then it just lines out some simple petitions by means of these comprehensive headings here. There's no fanfare. There's no telling God the whole situation because he already knows the whole situation. It just cuts right to the chase. And that's because this prayer comes from the heart of trust. God isn't more or less apt to hear us when we pray depending on the length of our prayers or how many words that we have in it. He just simply wants us to come and to bring our needs before him. Verse 8, Jesus says, Your father already knows your needs before you ask him. He even understands your needs better than you do. He knows them, and he's fully capable of answering them favorably, even without your praying. But here's the thing. He wants you to pray, and he wants you to bring all of your concerns before him because of the expression of trust that it is. He's waiting for you to come and to approach him. There's no need to get his attention in all of it or to convince him to hear you. He's ready and waiting. It's the trust and faith which comes from a longing heart that he's looking for. A prayer isn't merely words there, but it's an expression of the inner disposition. And that means then that we don't need to use extended prayers simply for the sake of length. Or that we don't judge a quote-unquote good prayer by the amount of words or a a good time of prayer that we had by the length of, of time that we spent. The measure isn't anything in isn't anything tangible, but it's measured by the yearning heart. If a long prayer is given, but in a way that isn't a real expression of the heart, that's praying like the Gentiles. And likewise, if a short prayer is given, but that isn't still a real heart expression, that's also praying like the Gentiles. Because in both, the whole person isn't involved. Praying with the whole person means that we also engage our minds as well. It's easy for our minds or our words to wander in prayer or to give up our expressions to repeated cliches and phrases that, after all, we realize that doesn't actually have a whole lot of substance to it. And sometimes we don't even know what it is that that we end up praying for. But when we come before God in prayer with our whole selves, It means that not only are our affections set upon him, but also our minds are set upon him. A simple prayer doesn't need to be intellectual, but it does, though, require the mind being set upon the task at hand, thinking about the needs and upon God the Father as he hears us. So our third point, then, what is it that we pray for? Well, prayer is for God's glory and our needs. Prayer is for God's glory and our needs. What would you say summarizes the content of your prayers? When are the moments, even, when you are most moved to pray? 
So the whole person, how we pray, isn't the only thing that we learn from the Lord's Prayer. We also learn what to pray. We learn the content. And really, this is just praying for what Jesus prayed for. And what did he pray, and what did he pray for? Six petitions here that we can summarize into two main parts. The first three are oriented towards God and his honor and his purposes. And then the second three are for our own concerns and our own needs that we have. So taken together then, this is actually a very comprehensive prayer despite its short length. The first half we said is oriented towards God. It asks that God would hollow, or in other words, that he would sanctify, that he would make holy, lift up his name. It prays that his reputation and worship and reverence of him would grow. This prayer desires to see his kingdom and all that's in it to be worked out across the world. That his redemptive plans would continue to be enacted and unfolded throughout history and in the lives of individuals also. That righteousness that he desires, that is his will there, would cover the earth. So there's a cosmic element here to the Lord's prayer. These are big prayers for God's glory. And it recognizes that these can only then be accomplished by God. His name, his glory, and his kingdom aren't the only subjects of prayer. God himself is the one who's being prayed to and asked to increase these for himself. Prayer isn't only concerned about our needs. It has a love and a devotion to God and to care about what he cares about. And God is committed to his cause. But he also cares about his people. And this is where his cares and concerns intersect with our own personal cares and concerns. The second half here brings up the concerns and the needs that we have. Our daily sustenance. What we need just even for today. And bread, the most basic food which represented the common sustenance for these people. Jesus teaches us to ask the Father to fill our needs. And those needs widely encompass our whole selves of, of both physical and spiritual, and then to sustain us for yet another day here. The Father knows our deepest needs, and he knows what they are. He knows what those needs are better than we do, and he knows good things better than we do. He knows what we really need. And part of our needs lie in the remaining petitions that we have here too. We have mercy and forgiveness, coming before the Father day by day, asking him to forgive us of our sins that we incur daily. And then as we are forgiven, there's an element where he is transforming us. That as we experience forgiveness ourselves and we learn its ways, and we are then transformed to go and forgive other people. So the request here is both for our needs to to receive forgiveness, but also for God to change our dispositions and to make us a more forgiving people, to make us more like him. And there's also the petitions that we would be kept safe from evil and for our protection, to be upheld in the face of wickedness and to be kept secure by the good shepherd. And again, we can't miss in all of this, there is an element of simple trust that we see here. We come asking God in these simple ways and with the whole person engaged then to satisfy our needs even just for this day. He knows what our needs are. And yet we're still to come to him and ask him as expressions of our trust in him and of of his goodness. And if we step back from these individual petitions and what we're to pray for, 
we notice something beautiful about the Father. He is committed, first of all, to his redemptive plans that are being worked out through history. This is the plan that he had had in mind ever since before the foundation of the world. It is something that he has been overseeing and that he's been committed to from the very beginning. It's something so marvelous that we can't really fully comprehend it. And he is ordering everything in history around it. Yet despite this overarching plan in universal or in universal scope that he is committed to, he's not too busy for us. He also has time for his individual people in the individual moments. In a way, he's like a father who's working from home. He's at his desk in his office, and he's busy working on things that his children really have no comprehension of and don't really understand at all. Yet whenever, though, his children come to him in the doorway and they knock, He's always willing to turn aside from his work and to greet them with a smile, to set them on his knee, to talk to them, to hear them. And sometimes they come because they're hungry, and sometimes they just come to say hi and to express their love. And that father is always willing to look aside from his work and delight in his kids, hearing them in whatever it is that they bring to him. God has a concern for his people that mirrors this. Though he's overseeing the entire universe here, he's working out his redemptive plans across the ages, he is never too preoccupied for you when you come to him. He delights when you do. We have our last point, number four. Prayer is communal. Prayer is communal. Every word that we have in the the prologue Our Father in Heaven, every one of those words is important. But there's one word there that's easy for us to gloss over. It's the word our. It means that none of his people have exclusive rights to to this over the others, but they're all brought into the family. And every person in that family is able to equally approach God the Father. Now, the right to approach the Father doesn't come from your perceived or real sense of holiness. It doesn't come through anything external. Women and men and children in the family of God, every ethnicity and class, ordained ministers or laity, all have the same right to pray and all are heard equally because of their union and faith in Jesus the Son. Prayer to the Father is exclusive in that we approach him through Jesus alone, but it's also inclusive because that all who come through Jesus are heard. But this communal address also assumes that we will pray together. In fact, even the the hour that's repeated over and over in the second list of of petitions and needs. Prayer isn't isn't merely something that's done by individuals. Prayer is done as the family gathers. Even if there are some in the prayer gathering who may not express their prayers vocally, they are still united together and are still giving affirmation to the requests and the petitions and praises that are being offered up to the Father. And this communal aspect of prayer means that we will also pray for one another. We will lift up not only our own needs and our own concerns before God, but also those of each other. And that means knowing each other. I mean, really knowing each other. Knowing each other's needs and concerns and being united together as family, praying for one another. 
Do you know all of the others around you here at Redeemer? How well? Are there people here that you don't know? Do all of your conversations hang only in small talk? Or do they go into into the deeper elements of life? Those areas that beg for prayer. But this means also something else too. Being known by others also so that they know how to pray for you. How willing are you to open up yourself up so that you might then be known to others and be prayed for in turn? And also disciples pray for one another because they're family. And living as family also means forgiving as family. Forgiveness is how the communal identity of brothers and sisters is played out. They are forgiven by the father as they are adopted into his family. And they live with one another. They forget as they live with one another, as they forgive one another because of grace and mercy then that they, that they have been shown. That's first been shown to them. Jesus says that the world will know his disciples by their love for each other. And part of how love is expressed is through forgiveness. And that's the context that we have here for Jesus' words in verses 14 and 15. The statement is intended to, to jar us. It shakes us. It sounds like our forgiveness is based upon whether or not we forgive others. It sounds like it's conditional here. But the idea is this. If you have a heart or a disposition that is unwilling to forgive others, then you need to examine yourself to see whether or not you've really experienced forgiveness or understand the forgiveness of the Father. Because a heart that knows forgiveness personally, with all of its sins and wrongs and offenses against God being dealt with mercifully by Jesus on the cross, never to be drudged up again, that heart will be moved to forgive others when they are inevitably sinned against and wronged against and offended against. These words of Jesus are meant to rock our boats a little bit. If I'm part of the family of God and I call God Father, am I also then willing to forgive? I began this sermon here with a statement that how you practice prayer reveals your view of God. And as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he reveals who the Father is. He is knowable and approachable. He wants his children to come to him. He knows your needs before you ask them, and he can't wait to answer them. He's listening. You don't need to coerce his attention. He's open to hearing all sorts of requests that encompass your entire life, no matter how big or how small they might seem or really are. Friends, this is who God is. And let's keep this in mind as we are engaged in the act of prayer. Or keep it in mind also as a catalyst to draw you into prayer if you don't do so regularly. And as Jesus has given us this prayer, uh, a model, a paradigm prayer for us to follow, a pattern, we're going to continue then in prayer of following this sort of pattern that we have here. The Lord's Prayer. You can find it in, the, in your worship guide there. Um, I want you all then to, to pray with the main headings there that you see in bold. And then also then join yourself, uniting your heart with, with me, not just with me, but with all, all of us here. Again, we said that even if you aren't praying, expressing the words with your mouth, you can still do so expressing it 
in your heart. And so let's pray together here. Our Father in heaven, what an honor to be called, to be allowed to call you our Father. As Father, you care for us. You invite us and you look out for us. As our Father, you bring us together with sons and daughters from every ethnic group, economic standing, and educational status. Hallowed be your name. How we long to see you glorified by all, to be reverenced and held in respect by government officials and constituents in all regions, by family members and fellow workers, by friends and foes. May the hallowing of your name become a premier priority among your people and give deliverance and direction to your church all across the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Though your reign has begun in the presence and work of your son, we long for the day when it comes in full, when the last enemy death is destroyed and all things are renewed in glory. May all peoples everywhere come to recognize that Jesus is Lord and the righteous rule of our King spread across the entire earth. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, you supply our every need. There are some who have serious needs. Provide them what they have need of. We confess that all we have in whatever time or season comes from you. Help us to be rich in good works, to give abundantly, and to not neglect to do good and share what we have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to you. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Instead of holding grudges and demanding our pound of flesh, may your gracious mercy strike us with such weight and force afresh that we will become quick to forgive those who have wronged us and just as quick to ask forgiveness of those whom we have wronged. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Look mercifully, O good shepherd, on this your flock and suffer not the sheep which you have redeemed with your precious blood to be torn in pieces by the assaults of the devil, the flesh, and the world. Thank you that you have rescued us from the penalty, the power, and the pride of sin. We long for your return when we will be free forever from its presence. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.